and said, please don't, because you didn't answer mine yet, and I still have some, and I'm loving this, so hey, what a good way to spend the summer, just going into these questions. So I, I picked, I think I have five tonight, uh, questions that I, I think apply to most of us here, and I'm sure you're going to get hit with one of these questions and some of the answers, and so let's get right into them. This was the question I got. How does the illegal immigration compare with the story of the Good Samaritan and our treatment of sojourners? Now, of course, we're watching our southern border flooded with illegal aliens. They're not coming in legally. Just so you'll know, they have done, they, we've had time to really check out the mainstream media reports. Mainstream media I'm trying to be kind, are always going to be liberal. They're always going to be biased against a conservative view. Always. So they've been telling us, oh, it's just children coming over. Well, it's not. We've, we've had time to really go, go to the border ourselves. M many uh, um, um, politicians and representatives and, and people who just went and took a poll, and they found that 10% were children. Ninety percent were teenagers, young adults, gang members, the kind that you would want out of your country. We're getting them. So just to kick the propaganda out for a minute, it's not a bunch of helpless children. It's about ten percent. So if they show you on the mainstream media news children, they selectively did that and didn't show you the others. Matter of fact, our politicians have been, and, and uh, 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 reporters have been told they can't go take pictures. They can't go and look at what's really happening in these places where they're being kept. They're not allowed in. So having said that, just to kind of get the obfuscation out of the way. Now let's talk about it. Jesus, in the story of the Good Samaritan, was asked a question. And this is why he went into his story. He was asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus went into this story. Uh, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, verse 31, by chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. So everybody say with me, the priest missed it. The priest should have helped him. And the priest was Jewish like this man, but he passed him by. So he didn't help his own. Okay? Now, moving on. A temple assistant, another Jew, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. So can we say he missed it too? So two of his own really did not reach out and help him at all, but, but ignored him. Now, then here comes a despised Samaritan. Everybody say, that be me, because that's talking about a Gentile, came along and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. So going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, got him a hotel room, put him up, 
paid the bill. The next day, he gave the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Wow. He did right. Amen? He, he did right. Because this man was robbed and beat up and left to die. So he fed him, got him a room in the Holiday Inn, told the manager at the Holiday Inn, if he stays longer than we anticipate, let me know and I'll pay that too. Now, Jesus then asked a question, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And of course, the man who asked him, who's my neighbor, replied, well, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now you go and do the same. Now, that story is used by, I think, often well-meaning people, like say with this immigration flood, that that story is what we should apply and we should run and, and take care of all these children and all of these that have come over illegally, house them, school them, give them medical treatment and supplies and, and welcome them on in. And when we do that, we're being a good Samaritan. But I have discovered that the Word of God is so often misapplied. Now, some of you are going to think I'm mean. So be it. Ask anybody who knows me. I'm not mean. Don't look at me so stern. Okay. When Jesus said, go and do the same, he was teaching a simple lesson on showing compassion to the hurting and the needy. That's all he was doing. If you see somebody hurting and needy, then, then have a Christian heart and help them. But listen to me carefully, church. Compassion must be accompanied by wisdom. I, and, and if it's not, it's, I've called it mindless compassion. Okay? If, if, if you've got compassion without wisdom, you're going to end up with your heart broken. You're going to end up getting taken advantage of. You're going to end up uh, uh, um, investing in people who do nothing but take advantage of your good heart and, and, and your goodwill and your kindness. And they'll go from you to the next one. If you don't use wisdom, discrimination, discernment, and common sense which is an endangered species now in America. Okay. Now, notice first that the Jewish man that was beaten and robbed had something illegal done to him. He was not the one doing something illegal. Can I have an amen here? He was not the one doing something illegal. He had something illegal done to him. If the man on the side of the road had just come from robbing a bank, let me ask you a question. Do you really think Jesus would have aided and abetted him? Would Jesus have aided and abetted somebody who had just broken the law? Come on. We're always talking about what would Jesus do. I can promise you Jesus would not aid and abet somebody who was doing something illegal. Because that would go against his word. Has he not told us, don't do something illegal? And would he ever tell us, I want you to aid and abet somebody involved in a criminal enterprise? No. No. If you think he would, we need an altar call with you at the end. I want to talk to you. Let's get, let's get this compassion thing straight. 
Because that would place Jesus in the position of assisting in a crime, and he's not going to do it. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Second, in our day, we often confuse compassion with sentimentalism. Compassion will always do what is best for a person. Always. In the long run. In the long haul. Years down the road. Sentimentalism always wants to react to an immediate need without thinking of long-range consequences. If I find my son involved in drugs, and I go in and he breaks down in front of me and he just says, you know, Dad, I just can't help it. He said, you know, I just like this stuff, and man, it just makes me happier, and I feel better when I do it. And, and he just cried and boohooed and sobbed. I could get sentimental and say, well, that's okay, baby. I understand. So do what you got to do. Was that, is that love? No, that is, that is aiding and abetting destructive personal activity. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Compassion... The, the love of God will never enable a person to, to do something immoral or illegal because it is destructive to them. So, so God's love does not aid and abet somebody in a self-destructive path. Sentimentalism will. Happens all the time. Sentimentalism doesn't take into account long-range consequences for a wrong action, but compassion always does. It is never the love of God to aid and abet somebody in committing a crime. Those who are crossing our border illegally are committing a crime. But Pastor Jeff, those little children, those little children, they're being driven out from all that violence and stuff. 10% are children. 90% are teenagers and adults taking advantage of an open, porous border without coming in the right way. Can I tell you, the Bible is so crystal clear about obeying the law. Remember that song, I Fought the Law? And who won? The law won. We are a nation of laws. If you're not a nation of laws, you are not a nation. If you don't have borders, you don't have a nation. Now, follow me. Look at this. This is Romans 13, 1 and 2. And I wish I could read this to every illegal immigrant coming across the border. Obey the government. For God is the one who put it there. There is no government anywhere that God has not placed in power. So those who refuse to obey the laws of the land are refusing to obey who? Think about that for a minute. The right laws, the good laws, and most of our laws really do root themselves in the Ten Commandments. Now, if there's a wrong law, like if they passed a law today, you can't talk about Jesus anymore, then I would have to break the law. And as the disciples said, we must obey God rather than man. But as long as the, the laws are rooted in the commandments, are reasonable laws, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't steal, you know, you shouldn't this, that, and the other. When we, when we could see these laws reflected in, in the Word of God, then if you disobey them, then you're disobeying God. So everyone that crosses that border is disobeying not just our laws, but God. 
and those who let them cross over are lawless. Well, that went over big. Well, shouldn't compassion, shouldn't compassion supersede law? No. Did you know that borders are ordained of God? Let me show you how borders are ordained of God. Acts 17, 26. The Bible says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. Now look what, look what he says. This is Paul preaching. He says, He marked out their appointed times in history, and what everybody? The boundaries of their lands. So, so borders, boundaries, are a God thing. A border is essentially an invisible fence. Borders are how a country is protected. Without borders, there is no country. Now, here's the way I feel about it. If America is good enough to come to, it's good enough to come to right. That means you assimilate and you become American. Okay? That's why I believe you should learn English because that's our native tongue. If, if America is so desirable, then pay the price and come in right. Because if you don't respect our laws coming in, you won't respect our laws once you're in. And that's just the way that it is. Now, you, let me just give you a WWJD. What would Jesus do? I'm convinced. I am positive of this. If I had come over illegally... And I sold out to Jesus and said, Lord, you're my Lord. I, I give you my whole life. I have no doubt whatsoever Jesus would tell me, go back and come back in right. Amen. There's no question in my mind he would. Because I know the way he's dealt with me over all other laws. He would tell me, honor the homeland, honor the nation, do it right, obey the laws of man. So this whole thing of, well, we need to be compassionate and we need to take care of it. I'm not saying you, you know, kick them to the curb. I'm saying you stop this flood. You send them home. All of them that you can. And you say to them, we want you, but come back right. And we'll help you come back right. And I believe if you would honor God that way, he would bless you here. He would bless you here. Now, this may not agree with you. Now, let me tell you what doesn't agree with you, and I'll move on. Emotionally, it's not agreeing with you. Because you've been hearing all the media. We need to be compassionate. We need to do this. We need to do that. To me, compassion is to get somebody into the will of God. That's compassion. I remember hearing Jack Hayford, Pastor Jack Hayford, said that he was in prayer one day. After he'd been a pastor for years, you know, way years, and he's in prayer, and God spoke to him and, and said, you remember when you were a boy, and you walked into that store, and you stole that piece of candy? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. The Lord said, I want you to make that right. He went back to that store. He had added up. I forget how he did it. He extrapolated the cost and interest and all these things on a piece of candy. 
And he went to the, the, the guy and said, uh, at the store and said, you know, this was years ago, but I stole in here. And he gave him the money. Now, this was decades after he did it. Why would God deal with Jack Hayford that way? Because God is a God who says, obey the laws of man so that you can have a clear conscience. Let's go to the next question, quickly. What is the difference between the flesh and the sin nature? Nothing. Let's move on. <laughs> now, let me give you the answer here. <laughs> um, that's, that's the truth, but let me, let me expand a little bit. Paul states in Galatians 5, 17, let's read about it. Here's the phrase, the sinful nature wants to do evil. You ever notice that about your sinful nature? Okay, sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. He goes on, and the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. In another place in Romans, he calls them laws. The law of sin and death and the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So you've got a law, and a, and a law is like, you know, you, you go two stories up and drop a penny and it falls because of the law of gravity. When the Bible uses law, it's talking about something that certain, that real. So there is the law of sin and death, that downward tug to do something wrong that we all experience, and that's why we need a Savior. The law of the Spirit of life wants us to obey God, to do what is right, to seek Him, to please Him, to walk with Him. So these two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Now, here you have the sin nature or sinful nature mentioned that was in the question. Now, Paul makes it clear that the sin nature and the spirit or the new nature within us are going to be in conflict until we die. Can I just be straight with you? That law of sin and death, that downward pull, and that upward pull are going to be in conflict with each other until we die or are raptured. Amen. That's just the truth. In the Bible, the new nature is called three things. The spirit, the inward man, or the new man. The old nature in the Bible is called either the flesh, the outward man, or the old man, or as we just saw, the sin nature. And they're all the same. Flesh, sin nature, old man, outward man, they're all the same. And they are in conflict with each other. You, you, you felt that conflict today. I guarantee you did. Somewhere along the way today, you wanted to get mad at somebody, you wanted to give them Texas justice. You wanted to say something you shouldn't. You wanted to think something you shouldn't. There, and, and then the spiritual side of you, the born-again side, said, no, go this way, and you had a conflict. Amen. And hopefully you chose right. Now, here's, here's the way it is. Before we we're saved, the old simple nature, the old man we inherited from Adam, totally ruled our life. We had no choice. We had to sin. We had to sin. Our father was the devil, according to Jesus, and we had a fallen nature. But then, 
we were born again. We said, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I come to you. I invite you into my heart. And when we did that, then he transformed us on the inside. If any man be in Christ, anyone, I don't care who it is, where they came from, what their pedigree is, what their income is, what their skin color is. I don't care if any person be in Christ. He's a brand new creation. The old has passed away and all has become what? New. All. Now that's talking about that new man. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now, it's God's intention, once we're born again, that we be ruled by our new nature by walking in the Spirit. The Bible says, one of my favorite verses, if by the power of God's Holy Spirit living inside of you, you put to death the deeds of the body, the flesh, the old man, the sinful nature, whatever you want to call it, you will live. You will experience the life of God. There's only one thing that can defeat the flesh, the sinful nature, the old man, that is still there in us, and that is the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's that old illustration. There's a living inside of you, a black dog and a white dog, and they're always fighting. And which one wins? The one you feed the most. It's really that simple. You know, I got this morning. I got this morning at the break of dawn, before the, right before the sun rose, went into a room, and I prayed. And I got with God. And then I got into the Word. Now, do you know that I don't do that so I can come to you and tell you that I do that? I do that to stay alive. I do that to maintain victory. Because I could fall. You could fall. If you think you can't, watch it. And so I, I know my flesh. You give, give my flesh a half a chance and my flesh will act i got to crucify it. I've got to, I've got to defeat it. And I do it by feeding that white dog inside of me, the new nature, the new man that hungers for the word, hungers for the presence of God, hungers to draw near to him, hungers to please him. And then when I've spent my time with God, then I go face the world and all the devils and all of the problems and challenges. You've got to get in the word, folks. So the flesh and the sin nature are one and the same. Is that clear for everybody? All right. Now, are people greeted by a loved one when they go to heaven? Some of you are saying, gee, I hope not. Am I really going to see them up there? Take that halo off. I know some of you. Well, I hope they're not on my street. In heaven. I hope they're on the other side of town. Okay. When you get to heaven, you won't care. You'll love everybody like God loves everybody. It won't matter. You will see that in-law that you had so much trouble with, and you will love them without one shred of flesh. Your flesh will be gone. Now, let me answer it. Scripture suggests that we will recognize others in heaven. It does indeed. In, in Jesus' story of the rich man who went to hell, he sees Lazarus as he's in hell. Lazarus was his former poor servant who would sit outside his door, covered with sores, and he was poor. And yet, he was a man of faith. 
And when he died, he went to heaven. But the rich man, not because he was rich. This is not an indictment on riches. He just happened to be a rich man who did not turn to God in faith, and he went to hell. Notice that Jesus taught hell. Jesus taught there was a hell. Jesus taught it more than any single person in all of the Word of God. Jesus did. So he sees Lazarus, his former servant, sitting in Abraham's bosom. And it says in the Bible, Luke 16, 23, there in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. So this is, and I don't mean to go here, I'm digressing a little bit, but notice in hell you're totally conscious. You can see, you're aware, you feel, you think, you size things up, you haven't lost your capacity to reason. In hell, you're really alert, just like here. That's how Jesus portrayed it. These people are going around saying, well, you can't preach hell anymore. People won't listen to you. And my response to that is, that's just flat stupid. Now, I mean that, if I name a name, I shouldn't say that, but I'm not naming a name. But it's stupid. Here's why. Because people are going there. I mean, if you saw somebody driving down a, a highway 100 miles an hour and it was a wrong way on a one way, would you stop them? Would you honk your horn? Would you wave your hands? Amen. Of course you would. We need to get back to that kind of preaching, actually. We really do. Now, so, so there's this rich man in torment. He sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus. The Bible also says... Now we see a blurred image in a mirror. But then we will see very clearly. Now my knowledge is incomplete. But then I will have complete knowledge as God has complete knowledge of me. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. In other words, here's what Paul is telling us. Our knowledge, when we get to heaven, is going to be as complete as God's. Surely then we will recognize our loved ones. And I can give you one more. The Bible says... We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trump, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who have died and been buried or cremated or whatever, their bodies are going to be brought back together by the Word of God, and they are rising, they are going to come out of the grave first. Then it says, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together, listen to these words, with them in the clouds. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. You know what that's telling me? With them means I'm going to see grandpa, I'm going to see grandma, I'm going to see my child that I lost, my dad that I lost, my, I'm going to see my loved ones because I will be with them in the clouds. With them. Because Paul gave that whole prophecy about the catching up of the church because people were really, really burdened about those who had died. So he said, they're going to be resurrected first, and then you will be caught up together with them. Wow. So are we going to recognize loved ones? <clears throat> yeah. I believe we are. And what a reunion that's going to be. I, I've presided over so many funerals. I preside over funerals uh, of children. 
That's the toughest. And yet, I've been able to tell those parents, by the authority of the Word of God, this is not a permanent goodbye. This is a temporary goodbye. Had a little guy, oh gosh, do I want to go here? Yeah, I'm going to go here. He got cancer. He's about eight years old. And it was fast moving. And I went and saw him in the hospital. You talk about an attitude of victory. Walked in, Pastor Jeff, Pastor Jeff, so good to see you. And I went over and talked to him, prayed with him, quoted some verses to him. He quoted verses to me. He had been a baseball star in his school. And then next time I went back, and I'm not meaning to be macabre here, but he had lost a limb because of it. So now he's having to hold himself up on these, these uh, kind of grips. And he pulled himself up to say hello to me. Smile on his face, victory. He didn't last long. At his funeral, I can just remember so knowing I was going to see him again. See, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. We are not as those who have no hope. But we have a sure and certain promise that when this body dies, our soul immediately goes into the presence of the Lord and there's going to be a great resurrection one day, a massive resurrection. And Jesus is going to raise the dead from all over the world and we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And that's a great promise. Now, here's a good one. Boy, have I talked to people on this one through the years. What is the unpardonable sin Jesus talked about? I'm afraid I may have done it. I had a phone call last week. Somebody said to me, Pastor Jeff, I'm terrified that I committed the unpardonable sin. I said, are you really terrified? And they said, yes. And I said, then you didn't do it. And I, what do you mean? I'm terrified. I think I did do it. No, you didn't do it. Because if you'd done it, you, you wouldn't be terrified. You wouldn't care. But I don't think we even really know what the unpardonable sin is. And, and I want to talk about this because this, the verse I'm about to read to you it has probably taken more people into mental and emotional torment and hopelessness than almost any verse in the Bible. So let me just show you the, uh, the, the verse. This question comes from the following passage. Now, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said of Jesus, he has Beelzebub, meaning he has a devil. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Assuredly, Jesus responded and said, Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of man and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. Now, people read that and they go, oh, no, I, there's been somewhere in my past where I know I said something about God I shouldn't have said. I was in a real bad place and I was maybe mad at him or I was just in a, uh, I was an atheist or I was somewhere in a real dark place and I uttered something and I just know I committed the unpardonable sin. All right, let's look at it. The Pharisees and the scribes who were watching Jesus perform miracles, 
they're watching him do all these things that nobody could do without God's help. And though the miracles clearly testified to who Jesus was, the Pharisees had no intention of acknowledging the, the divine origin of the miracles. They weren't about to say, well, he's got to be the Son of God. Or he couldn't do these things. They weren't about to say that. So they went the other way, and they said, he's doing this by the power of the devil. He has a devil. He's demonic. So when they attributed Jesus' miracles to the devil, it was essentially an outright rejection of him. Now catch this. They were rejecting him. And who he was, clearly the Son of God. I mean, he's raising the dead, multiplying loaves and fishes, walking on water. They knew what all he had done. And so they said, oh, it's by the devil. We're not about to accept him as Messiah. Okay? So it was a rejection of him. Notice that in the verse we read, they didn't say anything about the Holy Spirit. They did not mention the word Holy Spirit. Not once. They just attributed to Jesus the devil. They said his works were devil-inspired, but they never named the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in league with the devil. They were calling him really a sorcerer. That's what they were doing. Now, here's the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus. Because when you reject Jesus, you're also rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit who Jesus said came to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so if you reject Jesus, you are at the same time rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That is what he was talking about. Listen to theologian Dr. F.F. F. Bruce, very, very highly respected theologian. Look what he says. The Holy Spirit persuades and enables men to accept Christ and enjoy the saving benefits of the gospel. But if anybody refuses to submit to the Spirit's gracious constraint and conviction, preferring to call good evil and evil good, how can the gospel avail for him? The deliberate refusal of the grace of God is the one sin which by its very nature is irremediable. There's no remedy. If you are convicted and you say no and you push the conviction of the Holy Spirit away and in so doing reject Christ, that's the unpardonable sin. Because remember, in the story, they didn't say, well, these works are being done by, uh, by um, the devil and we, we say it's not the Holy Spirit. They never used that word. They just said we don't receive him for who he is. So they rejected Jesus. The only people who are going to be eternally condemned are those who reject Christ Jesus, the Messiah. That's the unpardonable sin. So say with me. Let me make you feel even a little bit better. Well, here's Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort writes, Anybody who rejects the Holy Spirit's convicting influence and does not repent will not be forgiven. Neither in this world nor in the world to come. Isn't that frightening? Aren't you glad grace touched you? Amen? That's what's meant by the unpardonable sin, the rejection of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's conviction. Keep in mind, folks, 
that the great apostle Paul confessed to having blasphemed. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a what? Blasphemer. Well, if you blaspheme God and that's the unpardonable sin, how did he end up getting pardoned and becoming the great apostle Paul and giving us two-thirds of the New Testament? He said, I was a violent man. I was shown mercy. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So say with me, I didn't do it. (laughs) And if you're in here and you haven't accepted Christ yet, pray, ask God to help you to do it. Come into the blessing of salvation. Now here's one. I have a family member, or I have family members who have joined the Jehovah's Witnesses. How can I show them where they're wrong and that it's a cult? I can't tell you how often I hear about these people. And you see them all the time riding around on the bikes in the summer in these black suits. you got to be committed. I'll give them that. Oh, is that the Mormons? Oh, well, leave it to my wife to correct me from the front row. <laughs> okay, that's the Mormons. Well, the JWs do it too. I, I know they're going to edit that out of the, the, the... Okay. Let's talk about the JW. How many of you know somebody caught in the JW cult? Look at that. Wow. Let me just show you here. The Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong on many, many Bible doctrines. I've heard people say this. The Jehovah's Witnesses know their Bible so well, and they've got so many verses memorized, and the truth is they don't know their Bible well at all. They really don't. It's just that Christians are lacking in Bible knowledge, so they're easily fooled. That's why we do what we do on Wednesday nights. Because the better you know the Word, the less likely that you're ever going to end up in a cult. Cults prey on ignorance. Now, let me give you a for instance. When it comes to the Trinity, which we have talked about here on Wednesday nights, witnesses, that's Jehovah's Witnesses for short, witnesses, only know about eight verses to defend their view of the Trinity. Now, here's one of the most erroneous claims, that Jesus cannot be God because he was created. That's one of their teachings. The verse they use is Colossians 1, verse 15, which says, And he is the image of the invisible God, the what, everyone? Firstborn of all creation. Now, where they get into trouble is that phrase, those two words, firstborn, or one word, firstborn. They get in trouble with firstborn, and here's where they twist it. The witnesses say that Christ is the firstborn, which they say means first created being of God. He was the firstborn, so he was the first thing created, because he was born. So they conclude Jesus cannot be God since he was created. Now, the key to understanding this verse is understanding the term firstborn. What does it mean? It comes from a Greek word that is prototokos. And we can all say that together. You ready? Prototokos. Turn to your neighbor and just say, I just learned some Greek. All right, now that's prototokos. Now watch. Prototokos. Prototokos not only means first one born, but it's also used as a title 
of sovereignty and preeminence. I'm going to give you an example. In Psalms 89, verse 27, listen to what God says about King David. God says of David, I also shall make him my what? Firstborn. The highest of the kings of the earth. Now, wait a minute. Let's take a look at this. How in the world can he call David firstborn? Because he was the eighth born of Jesse. So how does God say, I shall make him my firstborn when David was born number eight and last in the household of Jesse? In the Old Testament use of the word, he is firstborn in that he is preeminent or sovereign of all the kings of the earth. And that's why God used the word prototokos. He's firstborn, meaning he is preeminent. He's the leader. He's the sovereign. So that's the word Paul chose to use in describing Jesus. He's the prototokos. He is the eminent, sovereign king of all the earth and universe. Not a firstborn as we would think of it. But if you don't know any better, if you don't know Prototokos, Jehovah's Witnesses are going to take you for a ride. Okay? John is very clear on this. Let's read this together. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was where? With God. And He was what? Was God. He was with God when? So when the beginning began, He was already there. He wasn't born. When the beginning of things began, Jesus was already there with God and was God. Through Him, all things were made. The birds, everything, all the beautiful creation. Through Jesus, they, they flew through His fingers. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. When all creation began, Jesus, the Word, was already there, and He was with God, and He was God. One thing that distinguishes God, folks, from all else is that he has always been. He is not made. He gave everything else its beginning as the creator. But God never had a starting date. <laughs> now that will twist your brain into a pretzel. But he never had a starting date. You know why we can't handle that? Because everything we know and see and touch and taste and smell has a beginning and an ending. But not God. He never had a starting date. He was never created, and he was never born. He never began. The Jehovah's Witnesses, along with all the other cults, they attack the person of Christ. This one example should be enough in my book to show that the Jehovah's Witnesses are founded on heretical, false doctrine because they diminish Christ. And any teaching that diminishes Christ from who he is is bad stuff. Here's my last one. Who is the Antichrist? And when will he come? Some of you think I'm going to say a name. I can tell. That's what you're thinking. I wouldn't go there. I wrote what I'm about to read to you last week. I was going to post it on Facebook, and boy, it just turned out perfectly to answer that question. So here it is. 
the endless seething cauldron of hatred and bloodshed and war in the Middle East is only a harbinger, folks, of darker days to come. It's not going to be fixed yet. Now listen very carefully to me. The Bible's so clear on this. As the prophet Zechariah predicted, that tiny piece of real estate called Israel, which is about the size of New Jersey, can you believe that? Has now become the sore thumb of the entire world. And it's only going to get worse. It's only going to increase and intensify. You watch. The day is going to come when every nation in the world is focused on it like a laser because of the trouble and the problem and the war and the bloodshed and the ferocity that is going to come out of that one small area. It's going to affect and taint and trouble the whole world. Look what Zechariah predicted. Chapter 12, verse 3. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it. How many of the nations? All the nations. Do we wonder why? Look at what's happening right now in the political landscape. Do you see there's hardly a nation in the world that is not growing anti-Semitic? You know that France, Germany, other European countries have just in the last couple of weeks experienced a brand new, fresh, frightening surge of anti-Semitism. Protesting Israel in the streets, crying out that they would be, that the Jews would be thrown into the ovens. The place where the Holocaust happened, they're marching in the streets saying this again. Who would have ever guessed that anti-Semitism would raise its ugly head again in Germany of all places? All the nations of the earth, and look what he says, if you lift up, when he says all who lift it, that's talking about who mess with it, who try to mess with the land that God gave his people, who try to take it away from them, all who lift it are going to hurt themselves. Now the Bible teaches that the chronic vitriol between Arab and Jew is going to continue to escalate until a universal cry arises for somebody to provide a solution reaches fever pitch. And we are galloping towards this now. Somebody will enter Antichrist, the dark prince, the son of hell. Scripture says much about this evil genius. But first I want to clarify something. There is the Antichrist with a capital A, singular. And there are little Antichrists, plural, with a lowercase a. There were many Antichrists in the world at the time of the New Testament church, just as there are many Antichrists right now. Lord, they're everywhere. John writes this, Dear children, the last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming singular, and already many such or similar or like unto antichrists, plural, have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. Now let me tell you when the last days are, quickly, just so you'll understand when he says last hour, well, wow, that was way back in the first century. Last days means from the time 
that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the last days began. We've been in the last days 2,100 years. I personally believe now we're in the last of the last days, but they began way back when. That's why he was able to say it's the last hour. It's still the last hour, but it's the last of the last. We might say it's 1159. Okay? But notice, he said, there's Antichrist, the acid test. Here's how you know an Antichrist. Anybody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is an Antichrist, lowercase a. It's a spirit. It's a spirit. And boy, our media is full of them. Full of little Antichrists. That spirit, oh, I don't believe that Jesus stuff. Don't give me that Jesus stuff. He didn't come in the flesh. Don't give me that religious stuff. Any religion will do. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Hence, the arrival of the Antichrist is still future. Paul the Apostle describes his chilling entrance onto the world stage. Look at what Paul wrote. There will be a time of great rebellion against God. And then the man of rebellion, singular, will come. The son of hell. He will defy every god there is and tear down every other object of adoration and worship because he will demand to be worshipped. He will go in and sit as God in the new rebuilt temple of God, the plans of which are in Jerusalem as I speak. And what does he do when he goes into the rebuilt temple, into the Holy of Holies? He sits down and he says, what? I am God. Paul wrote that in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Now, when this dreadful prophecy comes to pass, you can expect to see some of the following. And I, this is just a real, just a, a few highlights, the things that stand out to me most. He's going to be immensely popular. It says in Revelation 13, 3, all the world marveled. They were infatuated with, taken with, the beast, and followed him. The beast is the Antichrist. He will drip with evil charisma. His popularity, second, will morph into worship with the world idolatrously hailing him as their savior. Revelation 13, 8 says, all that dwell upon the earth. <laughs> you hear that? All that are on the earth. Everybody will do what? Worship him whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the ones who are fooled, deceived. Third, he will swiftly take control of ten European nations to use for his future conquest. You can read about that in Daniel 7, 7 to 8. Next, his appearance will be accompanied with satanic miracles. Quote, Paul writes, His coming shall be after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. He will be like Christ, but the antithesis of Christ, in that as, as righteous as Christ was, he will be unrighteous. As good as Jesus was, he'll be just as bad. And as Jesus moved in supernatural, divine, godly power, he will move in satanic power. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 as the worst dictator of all time, he will install a one-world economic, political, and religious system. Look what it says in Revelations. 
And authority was given him over every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And all will worship him. No one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the beast. And we all know the mark 666. No question in my mind now, it's, it's, it'll be a computer-generated mark. You, you probably you won't be able to see it with the naked eye. It'll be a mark on your hand or your forehead, planted by a computer, read by a computer, scanned by a computer. I could go all night into how there's chips now, and, and, and they're already experimenting with putting chips under the skin to do away with credit cards and credit card theft. So the day will come when you'll go through the grocery store, and there will be a scanner that's not there right now. Well, it is actually there in, in a few places. And you'll run your hand under it. And it will read the chip under your skin and go straight to your bank and withdraw the money. And I believe it'll possibly be three sets of six digits because you could mark the whole world with 6, 12, 18. Three sets of six digits. 666. And when John wrote this, there were no computers, there were no bank, there was none of what we have now. But he saw it coming. The peoples of the world will hail him as a godsend, following his grand signature accomplishment, and it's a successful seven-year Middle East peace treaty brokered between Arabs and Jews. And you can read about it in Daniel 9.27. After all the presidential tries and secretaries of state that have tried it will fall to the Antichrist to actually do it. And i got to stop there because of time. Our deceived world, folks, is rapidly racing to this hour. Do you see it with me? Do you see it with me? Let's stand together, can we? I'm going to do one more week of questions, and then we'll finish this. But watch Israel... Watch it like a hawk. It is God's prophetic timepiece. It is God's prophetic timepiece. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for speaking to us and helping us to understand the times in which we live. Let's go out just singing one chorus, can we? Lead us, Carlito. Carlito.